you would turn with me this morning to Matthew 5. We are going to read what I think is one of the more challenging passages in the Bible. Uh, but I say really hyperbolic things like that on a regular basis. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, this is actually the wrong uh, numbers. We're going to do 43 through 48. So Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so this is the tenth in a series of ten sermons. Each of them an attempt to answer the question, what does it mean to fulfill the law? What does it mean to fulfill the law? Now I am referencing Christ's statement in 5, I think, uh, 11, no, I'm sorry, 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ begins a major section of His sermon with the words, I have come to fulfill the law. And then Jesus calls His people to follow Him by doing and teaching the law. Okay? Now, Every sentence from that statement to this passage is an explanation of what he means. So starting from your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and Pharisees to the words, therefore you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is an answer to the question, what does it mean to fulfill the law? Every sentence is, is, is from that statement to this passage is building. And we see within these two passages a radical call to peace and a radical call to purity and a radical call to fidelity and a radical call to integrity and a radical call to self-sacrifice. That's what we've been dealing with for the last several months. And this law-fulfilling, new covenant call of Jesus culminates in this, this final paragraph. Love your enemies. 
Love your enemies. Christ says if you do this, you'll be like your Father. You do this and you'll be called His sons. And you do this and you'll do the law perfectly. Or you will fulfill the law. But if you don't love your enemies, you're not doing the law at all. Okay? Now, all of these statements are here to highlight how significantly important is this passage. Today, I want to answer three questions. Three questions. One, what does it mean to love? Or, what sort of love is he talking about? What sort of love is Jesus talking about? And two, how is that love distinct from the world's? And three, what does be perfect mean? And how is it even possible? What does be perfect mean? And how is it even possible? Before we get into answering those questions, I want to walk through the text. All right, so you have heard it said, you shall love your enemies, or you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, the first thing we need to deal with is who is saying that? Because that's not in the Bible. There's no passage in the law that says, hate your enemy. Now, Several times in this sermon, uh, Jesus has, has uh, pointed to particular passages. And he said, you've heard it said, or, or it's been said of old. And, and he's referring, he's actually explicitly referring to or citing a passage in the law. That's not what's happening here. He says, you've been told you, can love your, you should love your neighbors and, and hate your enemies. Where, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? Who says... Hate your enemy. Well, I think this is what happens when stone hearts read the law of God. This is what happens when stone hearts read the law of God. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, do you remember the this, this story of the Good Samaritan? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, well, in that story, a lawyer comes to Jesus. Now, lawyers are awful lot like scribes and Pharisees. Lawyers are experts in the law. And he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus uh, what, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds to him, how do you read the law, lawyer? And he says, well, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, perfect. Do that and you'll live. And then the words, desiring to justify himself. Now that's a big signal for you. Desiring to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Now as soon as you ask that question, you're drawing a line. And the other side of that line, those are your enemies. You're allowed to hate those people. You're allowed to ignore those people because God really just said that I need to love my neighbors. That's what stone hearts do to the law. 
stone hearts draw a line so they don't have to love. But if you're in Jesus, you've been given a new heart. A new heart capable of fulfilling the new covenant call. Jesus calls your new heart to love bad people. Jesus calls your new heart to love bad people. Why? Keep reading. So that you may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you keep reading, this is actually, I'm having some technical issues with the slides, so I'm going to just turn that off, and I'm just going to keep reading here. For if you love those who love you and reward What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only the brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? I think something's happening here in the text that is outstanding. And I think it's going to shift the way you think about God. All right? What I think is happening here is that Paul is wedding, or I'm sorry, uh, Matthew, Jesus is wedding the principles of righteousness and the principles of love, right? We have, I think, divorced the concept of righteousness from the concept of love. And here's what I mean. I think in part, in order to simply tell people about the gospel, we have a narrative that goes something like this. God is righteous. And in His righteousness, He judges sin. But God is also loving. And so in His love, He redeems His people by sending His Son on their behalf. Okay, what I think this passage is suggesting is that the righteousness of God is most clearly visible in His love for bad people. The righteousness of God is most clearly visible in His love for bad people. Okay, That's why at the culmination of this series of calls to live in radical purity and radical integrity and radical self-sacrifice, Christ says, because you need to be like God who reigns on the unjust and who causes His Son to rise on the wicked. All right? Now, that's a major claim. I'm going to I'm going to prove it with two passages. First, this one. All right? He says, "So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for makes his son for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust." And then at the very end of the passage, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore. Therefore. Look at God. Look at how God loves the wicked. You, therefore, need to be perfect as He is perfect. Now, I want you to ask the question, what does the therefore 
Therefore, unless, unless Jesus is saying that God's loving of bad people is, is the, the bright display of his perfection. All right? That's the first passage. But the second passage I want to look at is Romans 3.23. Now, we know this passage because we often read it, but I don't think we read to the end. So I'm going to read to you from Romans 3.23. Give me two seconds. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Amen. Amen. Keep reading. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What shows God's righteousness? What displays God's righteousness like a beacon? His merciful love poured out on bad people. In Christ, His justice pouring wrath out against sin and also simultaneously redeeming His people by sacrificing His Son. The merciful love of God is is a bright and clear display of His righteousness. I think sometimes we think about righteousness and love as two diametrically opposed forces. And God somehow paradoxically finds a way to unite them. That is not seen, it doesn't seem to me that that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. It seems to me that, that Jesus is looking at the righteous perfection of God, and he's saying this righteousness culminates in his love for bad people. God's righteousness is founded. On his merciful love. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is that our righteous works, just like God's, must be founded on merciful love, must be driven by merciful love, must be fueled by merciful love. And if we're doing works that aren't fueled by merciful love, We're not doing righteous works. You following me? If we follow the example of our Father in heaven, then the new covenant call to to purity and to peace and to fidelity and to integrity and to self-sacrifice is driven by and culminates in a display of merciful love, after which we will be called sons and daughters of the Father because we are like Him. Okay, I think that's where we've got so far in the text. And then, this majorly disturbing sentence, you must be perfect, therefore, 
as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay. Okay. I actually wrote in the slides while I was, you know, building the sermon. I quoted Inigo Montoya. I don't think that word means what you think it means. This, has, this passage has been taught poorly for a long time. So you've got you to step aside from your baggage when you're reading this passage. There's a lot of people who read, I think, the sermon uh, uh, in a subpar manner uh, or, or not seeing the fullness of what Jesus is doing here will read this passage, you must be perfect as your Father is perfect, and they'll say, well, clearly that's impossible. Moral perfection was impossible from the start. Okay? So, so if Christ is then calling me to, to absolute perfection, then what He must be doing with this sermon is He must be highlighting how incapable we are and how much we need Jesus. Now, there is a very clear theme throughout the sermon that we are incapable without the work of Jesus. But there's also a very clear theme throughout the sermon that Jesus has done that work on behalf of His people and He's given His people a new covenant heart that can fulfill the law. All right? So, so when you read this, if you're thinking spotless moral perfection, it's not even going to make sense to you. Or you're going to completely misunderstand the entire sermon. That's not what that word means. Not what that word means. I want to show you the same sermon in Luke because it'll help us understand what's going on here. Same sermon in Luke. All right, we're going to look at Luke 6. Verse 32. Luke 6, verse 32. I'll read. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Sound familiar? Okay. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the most, or you will be sons of the most high, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And listen to this be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Can you hear it? Can you hear the structure? Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. What's going on here? What's going on? Do they have creative license? No. Uh, Jesus didn't teach in Greek. All right? Jesus didn't teach in Greek. He taught, it looks like in almost every case, in Aramaic. And Aramaic has a word, tamim. If you speak Aramaic or if you're Colby Jones, please don't judge me for probably the, the butchering of, uh, of that word, tamim. Uh, it means something like mature or whole or complete. And this word that Matthew uses, perfect, 
it can mean the same thing. Mature. Just like uh, at the end of Colossians. We just read this, Colossians 4. Epaphras is praying, he's laboring in his prayers. What is he laboring for? That the church may be made mature. Same word. Same word as Matthew's word in in, in, uh, be perfect as as, as the, the Father in heaven is perfect. Let me show you one more instance of the use of this word in Ephesians. Ephesians 4. Turn there, because I'm not going to have it on the screen. Ephesians 4. I love this passage. Ephesians 4. Eleven. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? Mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the same word, mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in, in, in the case of Ephesians 4, in the case of uh, Colossians 4, and in the case of Matthew 5, in all three cases, this word means fullness or completion or maturity. And it's starting to make sense of, of, of what uh, Luke and Matthew are both doing in trying to translate and interpret the the sermon of Jesus. Be merciful as the Father is merciful. Be perfect as the Father is perfect. In both cases, they're summarizing the law's call to love, and that love driving all the good works that we're called to in the New Covenant, being the completion or the maturity of, uh, of our New Covenant. The maturity, the complete fulfillment of the law. So both in Matthew and in Luke, we have this merciful love being the maturity or the completion of the law. Right? And so, so if you're doing that, if you're mercifully loving, and that merciful love is driving your good works, then you are fulfilling the new covenant call. Does that make sense? Okay. I think we're ready to answer our three questions. What sort of love are we talking about? We've used the terms merciful love. I've used the phrase loving bad people. What sort of love are we talking about? The second question, how is that love distinct from the world and the world's love? And the third question, how is this possible? How is it even possible? All right, the first question is the trickiest. And I want to reference a few passages in order to show you what this sort of love is is not what it is not. And that'll help us frame what it is. All right? 
First, what it is not. Let's look initially at uh, our, our passage, Matthew 5. I'm going to argue that, that this sort of love is not three things. It's, it's, it's not earned. It's not earned. It's not mere affection. And it is not mere action. Okay? It's not, it's not earned. It is not mere affection. And it's not mere action. All right, we're going to look at three passages to prove that. First passage is Matthew 5, just where we were. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. All right. What characterizes the love of the tax collectors and the Gentiles? It is reciprocated, right? It is, it is earned in, uh, in, in reciprocating displays of love, in reciprocating displays of greeting, right? We, everybody does this. Everybody's got a tribe, right? And it's not hard to love your people. What makes this love distinct is that it's issued towards your enemies, okay? We'll get into that in a minute. But at the very least, it's not earned, right? He begins this paragraph with, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're confused as to who your enemies are, this is one way to see who your enemies are. These are the ones who are persecuting, actively trying to ruin you. They have not earned your love. Okay? Alright. So, one, this sort of love is not earned. Two, this sort of love is, uh, is not mere affection. Not mere affection. Turn to 1 John. 1 John. I'm going to go in chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. I don't know why, but 316s are always good in the Bible. Almost always good. Right? It's weird. By this we know love. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Okay, so. At the very least, the love that John is talking about here doesn't terminate 
in affection and words, right? Or thoughts, okay? The love that he's talking about here, which I think is the same love that we're being called to, doesn't terminate in affection, okay? Doesn't terminate in thoughts and words. It's, if it's not embodied in action, it is not the kind of love that we're called to, okay? So it's not mere affection. Now, I don't think that's our problem, by the way. I don't think we err on the side of thinking our call to love is mere affection. But, but we need to sort of establish this boundary here because it's going to become important later. All right, finally, it's, it's not earned, it's not mere affection, and it's not mere action. All right, I want to show you 1 Corinthians 13. I am in debt to D.A. Carson for this call out because I think it was perfect. Um, it is worth just grabbing his commentary, uh, the um, Expositor's Commentary series. What's it called, Brett? Expos- Expositor's Bible Commentary. Um, D.A. Carson has a, a lot of good things to say on this sermon in other books, but this is a really nice summary. I would, I would commend it to you. Um, uh, he is addressing in his sermon that many people have argued that the kind of love that is being talked about by Jesus in this sermon is, is benevolent action. And, and just in a, in a two-sentence sort of turn, he says, if, that, if that's it, if that's all, then what is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 13? So I want to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. You probably know it because you've heard it a lot. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so that so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now let me ask you a question. If the kind of love we're called to is merely benevolent action on behalf of another, then what Paul just said, does it make any sense at all? Right? We are called to a love that is not less than, but certainly more than mere action. Right? What Paul is not saying is, uh, is, is don't give away all you have. <laughs> In fact, he seems to suggest otherwise. He's not saying, don't give up your body to be burned. Perfect love has no man than this. That he lay down his life for his brothers, right? That these are good things. These are good works. But you can do them without love. Right? You can do them without love. So we have these now three boundaries. And I'm going to try and take those three boundaries and summarize what love is. What is the love that we're called to? So it's one, it's not earned, it's not merely affection, and it's not merely action. All right, so my, my, my summary of my summary of love is this. It has something to do with emotion driving action without exception. Okay? Emotion driving action without exception. 
But that's not enough. I don't think that's enough. So let me give you uh, the product of sincerely two hours of conversation with my best friend trying to nail down a good definition of love. I think it is this. Biblical love is treasuring someone so much that you long and labor for their good and for their holiness and for their happiness. Okay? Treasuring someone so much that you long and labor for their goodness and their holiness and their happiness. Now that section, great, good, holy, and happy, that's coming from J.I. Packer. And uh, I think it's brilliant. Um, But let me break that down for you and explain why I didn't choose certain words. All right? Treasuring someone so much that. Now we, we racked our brains to choose a word that didn't merely reflect liking someone, but also had emotional dynamics. Right? Affection is the simplest, but you can have affection for a lot of things. <laughs> and there are some things that you treasure and you may not have affection for them in that moment. Does that make sense? Indeed, you can treasure someone for decades and rarely have bright, happy emotions in their direction. Right? So treasuring someone so much that you long and labor. All right, let's, let's see what that word long. I'm, I'm trying to capture what we see throughout the Old Testament, what we see in Jesus' ministry, which is God yearning for the repentance of His people. Do you remember when Jesus comes over to the hills and He sees Jerusalem and He weeps? He says, How long would I have brought you under my wing? Right? That's longing for someone's good. Sometimes someone who has no interest in their own good. Okay? But longing is not enough. We labor for it. Okay? We labor for it. Which means our... our treasuring of this person that that leads to a zeal or a passion for their good works its way out in actively working to make it happen. Actively working to make it happen. And that looks like prayer. And that looks like dramatic acts of service. And that looks like giving your stuff away. And that looks like laying down your life. So, you can see how those three boundaries influence the decision. Which is which is, one, you, you can treasure somebody who has not earned your affection. Right? But if you're acting on someone's behalf without, without yearning for their good, right? that's not biblical love. Right? But, but if you only want and think happy thoughts about that person, that's not biblical love either. Right? So that's what we're called to. That's, I think, the biblical picture of love that Christ is pointing to. 
And I think it's important for us to note that because it ought to be the driver and the foundation of everything that we've read to this point in the sermon. Okay. So that, I think, answers our first question. What is love? Or what sort of love are we dealing with here? The second question is, how is that love different than the world's love? If you want to call it tribal love or the love of your people, people generally enjoy others and want good for them and often work for that good, right? What else is parenting than, than, than delighting in someone and, and, and wanting their good and working for their good? What makes Christian love distinct from that love? That is, it, that love is not earned. And it is it's issued without exception. We love bad people. I, I'm intentionally replacing enemy with bad people because I don't think we use that word enemy very much in our minds. But we do think that's a, that's a bad guy. That guy's no good. What a jerk, right? We think those things. That's who you're called to love. Right? That's who you're called to love. Now, I, I rack my brain trying to in, embody this. What does this love look like in real time? I'm going to give you a couple for instances. Situations that make our love radically distinct from the love of, an, of, of the world's. When a guy not only refuses to look at pornography, but wages war against pornography, not only in the lives of others, but in, as an industry. When someone makes a point to highlight how destructive pornography is, and he refuses to engage in that himself, and he, and he equips another, all of his brothers, to fight that, 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 that desire. Not merely because it's wrong, because, but because he loves the prostitute. And he longs and labors for her good. That, what, she, whoever is in that video or image, that's a real person. And she's selling herself. And that's a tragedy and it reminds me an awful lot of who I am and, and how God saved me. Uh, we, you don't just stop looking at porn in order to be pure. You stop looking at porn because you are driven by a desire to see the redemption of every prostitute in the world. Make sense? That's the distinction between merely the work of trying to purify yourself from from a, from a nefarious desire to what we are called to, the mature fulfillment of the law, which is love-driven purity. Or another instance. When she fights desperately for reconciliation with her adulterous husband... Because she treasures him and she longs and labors for his good. 
right? Knowing that she has an out. And she spends years desperately seeking, praying for, laboring for reconciliation with with an adulterer. You see this play out in the Bible in Hosea. But we've seen this play out in our church. That treasuring of your spouse that leads you to long and labor for their good to your own harm, that's the kind of love we're talking about. And that's the kind of love that's different from the world's. You tracking with me? All right. So, we are called to the sort of love that is the seat and the anchor and the foundation of all of our good works. We're told that it has a central place in our obedience to Christ. In fact, without it, what we call obedience is not obedience at all. And then, and then we're told to be, to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. To be as, as merciful and as loving as our Father in Heaven is merciful and loving. Right? That's the call. The call to perfectly or completely fulfill the law of God in Christ. That's the call. How? Is that even possible? How is that even possible? That's a great question. That's what we're going to talk about next week. How to love. How how do you make yourself feel things? Sneak preview, you can't. You can't. How 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 do you generate in your heart a treasuring of someone you think is despicable. How? Because, it's an important question to ask, because if you're not doing that, if you're not driven by that, then your, your works are not complete yet. So next week, we're going to spend our entire time answering the question, how to love people in the way that we just talked about. How to treasure people so much that it drives a zeal and it drives your actions to labor for their good. Okay. Okay, well, we're going to sing together. And this is a great time to reflect on Christ's work who embody this kind of love on our behalf. Amen?